Well, good morning, once again. Would you please take your Bible and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we'll be starting at verse 41 and reading to the, the end of the chapter. So John chapter 6, verse 41. The word of the Lord reads, Therefore, the grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be all and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has, has seen the father except the one who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews begin to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father has sent me and I live because of the father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon, Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Father, so much here in your precious word that we need to learn and to receive this morning. Father, I pray by the sovereign act of your own will, by the working of your spirit, by the power that's given to us in Christ, I pray that you would be exalted, that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to receive your word. I pray, God, that it be your will and your glory alone. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, sadly, there are many who walk away from the faith. There are also maybe many reasons that people walk away from the faith. But it really all boils down to one reason why someone would walk away from the faith they once, they once held. It's have they truly seen Christ as he is. The one who walks away, did they really receive and see Christ as he 
is. Many walk away due to personal hardship, life struggles, intellectual obstacles, when it's no longer convenient, when the waves of life begin to thrash too hard, when the sun is beaming too hot upon them, when the pressure of life gets too much, or when the ease and the blessings of life seemingly decrease, when the trials increase, when all these things in their life begin to, to, to implode, so to speak, then Christ becomes small and they walk away. But what it really uncovers is the fact that anyone can leave at any time from the faith. And we may sometimes never anticipate it. I'm sure we all have personal testimonies of seeing others who we thought loved and walked with Christ and then out of nowhere, no more. Many pastors in the media, famous pastors, well-known pastors, many flock to them and now claiming to be atheists. It's heartbreaking. But the question still remains, did they truly see Christ as he is? Did they behold the son of God? Because what we have to realize here, and it's in this passage we just read, is that the call of Christ is radical. That it is a consuming call. That when you behold Christ, you're not just saying a prayer. That you are beholding God, very God. And for even for us, for believers, there are times and seasons when life no doubt overwhelms us and when life seems unbearable. But what delineates the believer from the outsider is that they have a right saving knowledge of the person and work of Christ. What delineates the believer from the outsider is that whenever they encounter any obstacle, any trial, whatever the case, the pressures of life may be, what delineates the believer from the outsider is the right knowledge of this person, Christ. And that is what's central. This passage reveals the heartbreaking reality that the offer of the bread of life is not always received received warmly. It's not always welcomed among every ear, not always open to every heart. The heartbreaking reality is that people can hear the life-giving message of salvation and yet not receive it or even receive it for a little while and then say, I want it no longer. Sometimes someone hears the the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they receive it. Their eyes are open, their hearts are open and and they receive and see Christ as he is and they are saved truly by the hand of God. And that, my friends, is a marvelous work of grace. But there's not always one response, one result. We picked up here in verse 41. Last week, we looked at verses 23 through 40, and we saw how this, this, this discourse of the bread of life began, of how Jesus here, having performed the miracle of multiplying bread and fish among the crowd, and they, they see his glory, they see this magnificent work before their eyes, and they're amazed at this man. Who is this man? And he goes into the discourse and says, you know what? This physical bread that you tasted, it sustains you for a little while. But I am the bread of life and I'll sustain you eternally. That receive me, he points them to. He says, I am the bread of life we looked at. But now we're here at a time of Jesus' ministry. Starting in chapter 5 in the Gospel of John, where the opposition to Christ begins to rise. You look at chapters 1 through 4, and even in 5 and 6 we looked at, but the the beginning chapters of the Gospel of John, we see Christ, this man coming out of Galilee, and and John the Baptist is pointing to him. The crowds are seeing him. He's healing the sick. The, The blind can now see. He's doing all these wonderful miracles, and people are amazed at who this man is. And yet in chapter 5, we start to see opposition to him. That the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're seeing this man, they're realizing the implications of what he really is saying and what those implications have upon their profession. We're starting to see the opposition of this man who was great, who performed many miracles. Many are flocking to him, and yet there are those who are opposing him. And this week we'll see not only does he have opposition, but those people among him are starting to even walk away from him. So last week we looked at how Jesus addresses the crowd and he offers himself, I am the bread of life. 
And now this week, you know, it's the first word, therefore, we'll see the response of this message. Well, how do they respond to this message that Jesus says, I am the bread of life, that I will sustain you eternally? What is the response? What is the result of this? This offer was given to all. That many people within the crowd who, who were hunting down Jesus, they were hunting them down. Many heard this message. He says, whoever beholds the son, whoever looks upon the son will have life. Anybody, if you come to me, I will give you life freely. Come behold me. This offer was given to this whole massive crowd who's following him. And now this week we begin to see the result from the different people within the crowd. And what is that result? What's that result? In John 6, chapter 6, verse 41 through 71, we just read, this offer of free bread produces three different results that point to the amazing grace of God. That this offer of free bread produces three different results that point to the amazing grace of God. And so this first result here is found in the first several verses, verses 41 through 59. This first result is that it offends the outsider. It offends the outsider. Just as a side note, we're going to spend a little bit longer time on this first point than we will on the second two. So just as a heads up, that this first result, it offends the outsider. And this is very evident from the very beginning of this section. Because having heard the offer of eternal life that Christ gave them in the, in the preceding verses, he says that this offer of eternal life I'll give to you, it's through, it's through me and me alone. I will, I will give life to you. I will raise you up on the last day. Having heard that whole truth that, uh, of who he is, that I am the bread of life, which means I embody divinity. I am God in the flesh, that I give you eternal life. And not only will I give you eternal life, but I will sustain your life, that I will preserve you to the end. This offer was given to them. Having heard this beautiful, this wonderful, message, just think for the believer, for us to hear this message that Christ is our source of life, and not only he is our source of life, but he sustains our life, that he keeps us to the very end, this wonderful message, here, come to Christ, anybody. And how do they hear that? How do they respond to that? Look at verse 41. Therefore, in light of this, therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him. That they were grumbling about him. It's it's sad that they would hear this wonderful message presented to them and their response is not, oh, let's let's go after this man. Let's leave our our workspace tradition. Let's follow him. But rather, they grumble at him. And I think it's ironic that the same Jews here who were grumbling about Christ being the spiritual bread, they're really acting like the spiritual fathers that they referenced. That you remember in the back passage, they said, wait, wait, Moses here, he fed our fathers in the wilderness with this manna. So where's your bread? They speak constantly of the forefathers, the Jews of the Old Testament. And yet, it's not ironic that those same Jews were the same ones who were grumbling to God. That when God gave them manna from bread, because they were complaining, coming out of Egypt, I mean, take, for example, Numbers chapter 11, God has given them all this food. He says, and they say in verse Verse 5 and verse 6 of Numbers chapter 11, they're saying, okay, now, now God, we remember the fish that you gave us. We remember that the, the, the fish we used to have in Egypt, that we had this luxurious lifestyle, that we had drinks for days, we had food for days. We remember those times in Egypt, Lord. We remember the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And now the Jews here say in Numbers 11, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all for us to look at except this manna. That's all we have. This manna came down from heaven. And now the Jews in the Old Testament, being delivered from the hand of Pharaoh in the wilderness, are now complaining about this bread from heaven that now these Jews before Jesus are referencing. They're grumbling just like their forefathers. They had a generational track record of grumbling here. It didn't start with them. That even them in the wilderness being led by the hand of God, having been fed by the hand of God in the wilderness and grumbled against God's hand. And yet it's ironic, we see that same picture here on the other side in the New Testament, grumbling before God in the flesh about the spiritual bread he's offering to them. That their fathers, the same way grumbled about the manna from heaven, are grumbling now about the bread from heaven before them. The apostle Paul later condemns these wicked forefathers who they're referencing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and you remember that whole account when he's, ta- he, he's talking to the Corinthians and saying, you, you know, there are many 
They all drink the same spiritual, the, the sp- same spiritual water. They all drink eight of the same spiritual food. But, but, but take note, many of them God was not pleased with. He says many of them he wasn't pleased with because they committed idolatry. They were immoral. He says they grumbled. And he says to the believer in the, in the New Testament, do not grumble as they did. Do not commit adultery as they did. Do not commit idolatry as they did. Do not do these things as they did. Do not grumble at the hand of God. One person said it this way, that these people here before Christ preserve the genuine succession of unbelief. That he, they hear the offer of salvation and they're grumbling at it. But let's look at the reason of their offense. Why are they offended? Why are they grumbling? Verse 41 at the end, it says, they're grumbling because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How, how does he now say, I come down from heaven? They hear the message that he's saying, wait, I'm, you're coming down from heaven, but wait a minute. I was at your circumcision. Like, no, no, you, you, you were, wait, wasn't that your bar mitzvah? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm making this up. But, 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 but they're saying, wait, I know who your mom and dad are. So how can you say I come down from heaven? How can you make that assertion? Because I know your man. I, I know your family. I was just texting you Mary earlier. Like, this doesn't make sense. So they were, they were really offended because they couldn't reconcile the fact that this man who they knew was born of flesh could also come down from heaven. That they saw this seemingly contradiction and they stumbled at it. But the real reason is they didn't really know his true ancestry. Because if they did, they would realize that his coming down was entirely congruent with his coming down, with his coming down out of heaven. If they truly understand his true ancestry, they would understand that God will one day send a man in the flesh to be the savior of all mankind. And they would see that that is not in contradiction with the claim that he is born of man. That this man they're standing before him is not only a man, but he is truly God. As we looked at in the first point last week, that they can understand that, wait a minute, you are the bread that's come down from heaven, that you are God in the flesh. If they truly understood, as John says at the beginning of his gospel, that the word became flesh, the grumbling would cease. But they didn't. And I think this, is, this response of grumbling is still in effect today. I mean, if you really think about it, the, the real confusion, the real complication they had here is the understanding that this man Christ was not just a man. That's, that's essentially what, what is getting them, that he's not just a man. And that's still in effect today because if you think about it, any attempt to, to attack Christianity is to go after the man of Christ. So who are these Christians following? They're following this man of Christ. And the first attempt here, as you look at any historical documentary on TV, is they'll go after this man Christ and they'll say he was just a man. That he was a good man who followed good morals and people followed him and so we should have good moral lives too. But they will neglect the fact, the essential fact, that this man was not just a man, but this is man who was God and God in the flesh. That this is still in effect today. That many reject Christianity because they can't accept that Christ is not just a man, but he is God. Because if they did accept that, if you did concede to that fact, if you concede that this man, this historical man Jesus, is not just a historical man, if you concede that he's a God in the flesh, then that has implications on your life. Then that means there must be something that must be done that I have to have a proper response to that. So it's not just this intellectual obstacle. It realizes the fact that if he truly is God, I must surrender everything to him, which they weren't willing to do. This is a heart issue, as we'll see as we go on. So he, he directly addresses the attitude of their heart, but he holds them accountable. Because right after that, he says, do not grumble among yourselves. Just like he says in verse 26, I, I think it's, I think it's funny, actually. Well, it's, it's funny in my mind. Is that just like before they said, wait a minute, Jesus, how'd you get here? And he never really answered their question, if you remember. He never answered the question of how he got there. I walked on water. Rather, he addresses the heart of the issue. Stop working for material bread and realize I'm the bread. In the same way here, he knows that they're, they're grumbling about how can this man be, be, be come down from heaven? How, how is this possible? And Jesus could have like explained, okay, well, you see, 
In the beginning was the word and the word. Now, he he doesn't go there. He addresses the heart of their issue as well. He says, do not grumble about yourself because he realizes the nature of their heart. And he goes to the heart of the matter. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. He realizes this is not just an argument against my parentage. They're not really wondering about who my mom and dad is. This is about their parentage. This is the fact that their father was not the true father. So he says, he holds them accountable. He says, do not grumble. Stop the grumbling in your heart. But even more, he gives them a theological understanding that the reason why your heart is hardened is because no one will come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That's the, that, that comes down to, that's the crux of it. That the reason you're stumbling is because no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And he uses this, this term here, drawing here. Last week looked at God's election, but I won't spend too much time on that. So listen to that again if, if you have any questions on that. But, but let's look here at what, what, what God is doing in his drawing, in his drawing someone to himself. Because he uses interesting verbiage here to say that, that no one can come to me unless the father draws me. This, this word draw here, it's, it's a word that was used in Semitic culture for someone who was drawn to God by an irresistible or supernatural force. It doesn't apply a drawing that's against someone's will, but the idea that someone is drawn because their eyes and their, their will is freed and their eyes are open. So now they're drawn irresistibly to something that they cannot turn away from. And that's the idea here that Jesus is saying here is that no one can come to me unless the father draws them, unless he opens and frees their wheels and opens their eyes to see the glorious man who was standing before you, you cannot come to me. That if God does not draw the sinful man into himself, no one will come. That God brings men to himself. That God brings man, even though man by nature prefers sin. That by nature, born into sin, it is God who opens their eyes and draws them into themselves. Now, I just want to address, before I go into that further, just some, some contrary beliefs, even in Christianity, of what this idea of what is God doing in his drawing. That there's some who believe that, that when God is drawing someone, even in relation in context of this passage, that God drawing someone, that this drawing can be resisted. That some argue that God draws men by, by divine pulling, but man can resist that pulling. That if it, at the end of the day, he does pull, he, he pulls everyone in one sense, in a general sense. Everyone is kind of pulled or called, but man can resist that pulling. Briefly, Within the context of what we just read this week and last week, God makes it clear that no one resists that pulling. John 6, 37, we looked at, right? That all that the Father gives me will come to me. Is there any exclusion of that? That some that the Father gives me will come to me? Most of whom the Father will give me will come to me? No, no, no. John 6, 37, he said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And Jesus himself following up after that says that I will lose none of them. That all of this whole group we looked at, this this group of people whom Christ came to save, he says, he himself says, I will lose none of them. That all that the Father gives to me, all of them will come to me and I will preserve. I will keep them. So to say that anyone can resist this pulling, then you must reconcile that idea with what is being said in John 6, 37 and following. If you're saying there can be a resisting to this pulling, how do you reconcile that to the fact that it says clearly that all of them God will give and Christ will keep? You must reconcile that. In verse 44 here, it's almost like the negative, it's a, it's a parallel thought of 637, but it's kind of stated in negative form. So 637, he says, all who come to me, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And he says in a negative form here that you can't come to me unless the Father draws you to me. Like they're both parallel thoughts, hand in hand. One phrase positively, one phrase negatively. That all will come to me and you can't come to me unless he draws you. Along that same line, there are some who believe that this idea of what's called prevenient grace is a fancy theological term, is to explain what this drawing is. That they would argue here, 
along with that same thought that man can resist the will, man can resist that drawing, is that God gives this prevenient grace to all, to all people, to all men. So every single person on this earth has this prevenient grace, and this grace is generally given to all men so that anyone can respond to God's call of rest salvation. This is a huge understanding, a huge teaching in Christianity as well. They argue that anyone is thus capable. Just as the sun shines down on all the earth, so grace is granted to every man. Now, I want to address that as well. And I realize, too, for some of us, too, coming from backgrounds that are more maybe Arminian in some senses, where they're teaching of more man's power to choose, I realize that this is sometimes, this whole passage we've been looking at from the past two weeks it really addresses it head on. And I realize there's some difficult truths in here to reconcile here. And I just want to remind us to bring back from last week here is that we're not dissolving man's responsibility. We're holding man fully accountable that the Bible has this tension here where God is 100%, 100% sovereign, that he chooses whom he wills, and yet man is 100% responsible for what he does with Christ. That these are two realities that we must uphold all the time, that they're 100% true. That God 100% saves his own and man 100% is responsible for what he does with Christ. But to hear to say that this provenient grace is given to all men, I think is nowhere justified in scripture. But let's just start here with this passage. I, I, I think from what he said so far already here, that, that only those who God calls to Christ will come to him. But I think in order to address that is you need to start with the doctrine of man. Start with the doctrine of man. Who is man? So before we address what man can do, let's ask, answer the question, who is man? And I think that will fill out the rest. What does God say about who man is? Ephesians 2, chapter 1, for example, I mean, chapter 2, verse, verse 1, for example, is that it basically says that man is unable to come to God in his own. He says that man is dead to sin. All throughout scripture, what is he saying? Man is unable to come to God. If you look at Psalm as well, that, that, that all like sheep have gone astray, that all of us, no one was choosing God, no one was walking toward him, that all of us were, were, were slaves to sin. Look at John chapter 8, that the Bible describes man as being slaves to unrighteousness. Romans chapter 6, slaves to unrighteousness. Colossians 1, we're alienated from God. Romans chapter 5, that we're hostile to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that we're spiritually blind. 2 Timothy 2, that we are captives to do the devil's will. That Colossians 1, again, we're trapped in Satan's kingdom. That we're powerless to change our sinful nature. We're unable to please God. We're incapable of understanding spiritual truth. We are dead in our sins and transgressions and sins. The Bible describes man as being dead, as being evil, as being wicked in nature, loving sin, loving their own sinful nature, coddling it. The Bible describes the man as being utterly unable to save himself. Let me ask you the question this morning. Did you come to Christ in your own strength? Was there a point in time where you realized, you know what? It's time to I'm just going to now get my life together. I'm going to choose Christ now. I mean, you know what happened, right? You know what happened to all of us, all of us in Christ. This is all our one testimony, is that there came a point in time when God opened the eyes to see the horrid state of our sinful selves. He saw the path we're headed to death. And you know what he did? He revealed to us the glorious majesty of Christ. And we saw Christ and we said, there's nothing else I want other than him. That's what God did. He made it irresistible for us. He drew us into himself to his son so we can fall at his feet and see there's nothing else than him. That's what God did. And that's what Christ is saying here is that do not grumble. You're grumbling. Your heart, your heart is hard because ultimately you have not been drawn to me. And he follows this thought with an Old Testament scripture. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. I think it's kind of, it almost seems like a random thought here in the middle of this juicy passage that, that he's giving this, this rich theology and he says, it is written the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Okay, it's random, but what is he doing here? It's important whenever you see quotations from the Old Testament here to go back and trace back, really, what is he connecting? What thought is he making? This quotation here, is, it's kind of interlaced mainly predominantly from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 13 when it's pointing back to the restoration found in the new covenant that God has given to Israel in their judgment, he's prophesying that one day when I will restore you, when I will offer you a new covenant, 
In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13, he says, all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. It's almost interlaced with Jeremiah 31, 34 as well, which speaking of the new covenant, when, when God says to Israel, I will give you a new covenant, not like the old one, but this new covenant, he says, I will write my law upon your heart. That this is what they couldn't do in the before. That this is why they couldn't obey him fully. Is that that they, they, his law was not upon their hearts. But he says, in this new covenant, I will impress my word upon your heart. So when Jesus here is referring back to this passage, he's pointing back to the time when the prophet was looking forward to the day when God would impress his word upon their heart. He's saying, here, look back at the prophets. That no one can come to me unless the father draws me. And you know what the father said he will do? He said, I will one day, I will put my law upon their heart so they can follow and love me. And no one will have to say, here, know God, love God. Because you know why? His, his word would be on the part of their heart. So he's pointing back to the prophets, which are pointing forward to this new covenant to say, this is what the scripture said. That there would be a time when God would impress his word upon your heart. So Christ here is he's explaining the drawing of the father, that it was something articulated in the Old Testament scriptures where God would do and he alone would do it. And in some sense, the fulfillment of that prophecy was being partially fulfilled before their eyes. That many were flocking and coming to Christ, no doubt. That many saw who he was, the God, very God, and many were coming to him. That that was a partial fulfillment of what God said he would do back in Isaiah and back in Jeremiah. So no one comes to me unless the Father draws me. Just as the prophet said, God will put the word upon their hearts. That this grace that he's talking about, this grace will always conquer. It does what it sets out to do. It saves This is simply what Jesus here is explaining, what's been spoken of as the doctrine of irresistible grace, right? That says essentially that no one will come to the Father, and no one will come to the Son except by the Father, and they come through that irresistible grace. Then Christ is irresistible to them, that they see him as he is, that it's not someone's coming, kicking and screaming, but no, it's really the freeing of the will, where they realize, oh, I was trapped in bondage, I was dead, but now I want to freely flock to Christ. They realize that this is the man, and he is the only way. Verse 46, that not, only, not that anyone has ever seen the Father except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. He ends this by saying here is that if you want to know, if you want to see the Father, no one has seen him at any time, but I have seen him, that I am carrying the divine essence. I have seen him. So if you want to see God, come to me, look upon me, and I will bring you to him. That he is the only way, articulating. I think just as a side note, I think one of the best illustrations of of realizing really what is this irresistible grace, one of the best illustrations of that in scripture is Acts 9, the conversion of Paul, right? You you look at this man, he, he was zealous about doing those works, zealous about murdering Christians, zealous about his own way of life, and he was on his way to do it even more. And what happened? He was stopped in the tracks by Jesus. That he saw Christ and he was blinded by Christ. He fell down on the floor right in the process of pursuing his sin. And it wasn't ever like, oh, okay, well, I guess now maybe I'll follow him. Like, that was not the response. That he saw Christ in his, before his very eyes. He fell to the floor and Christ told him, get up and go into the city. And he did immediately just that. This was not... This is not Paul coming, kicking and screaming. This is Paul realizing, wow, I was on the road to hell. Which is why Paul likely later says that of all the sinners, I'm the chief. This is a marvelous work what Christ does. That he reveals his glory. He reveals his goodness. And they see no other place for true bread. And again, after Jesus affirms that he's the bread of life, again, 
we looked at last week. He says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. That again, he brings that same phrasing, I am the bread of life. We, we spoke about it last week, but this is one of the seven statements of Christ in the gospel of John, that I am, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the great shepherd. He's I am, I am, explaining Christ's work of salvation as the Messiah, that I am the Messiah. And one of the things here he's saying here is that as the Messiah, I am the bread of life. And what does that mean for me as the bread of life? It means that I am the only source of true spiritual life. That he used the analogy of physical bread, sustaining physical life. But guess what? As I am the bread of life, I sustain spiritual life and I sustain it eternally. So truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. That this is given to anyone who would believe upon him. He would have that eternal life. That he would have life with him. And notice the figurative language of what is being offered here as the bread of life. Because he kind of gives the, the, the comparison of the fathers again, which we'll look at. But he says, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. Now skip down to verse 51. That I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which also I will give for the life of this world is what? My flesh. My flesh. It's interesting here when he notes down here that the bread of life, what is it that's happening? How is it that this bread of life is being fulfilled? He's pointing ahead, which I will give for the life of the world. What will he give at some point in time? The definite point in time, he will lay down his own life. And what will he lay down? My own flesh. That the means to this eternal life is given and offered and secured in his own flesh. That he's looking ahead to the day of atonement when he will lay down his life as a sacrificial lamb. That as his bread of life, it is secured because my own flesh will accomplish it. I will lay down my life. I will pour out my blood to the point of death. That my flesh is the bread. So this bread of life, which he offered, he said this bread of life, is my flesh. Now these are some hard, hears, hard words to hear because he's, he's now saying here, he's not only saying that I am the bread of life, now come to anyone who beholds the son will have life, but now he's saying here, this bread is my flesh. And no doubt the response here is startling because in verse 52 right afterwards, this is how the Jews begin now to grumble, right? And they're not grumbling anymore, but now in verse 52, the Jews begin to do what? To argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is not a matter of just grumbling here. Now they're arguing like, wait a minute, wait a minute, his flesh to eat? Like, what is he talking about? How how can he give us his flesh to eat? But Jesus knew, of course, what what they're doing, what they're thinking, what they're saying. But he doesn't back off. Like, like knowing the, the hesitancy, knowing what's going on in their hearts, that this man's given us his flesh to eat. You, you would think Jesus here would take the opportunity like, okay, you know what? I think I went too far. <laughs> like, okay, okay, maybe I take that a step further. Okay, okay what I meant, well, the, the flesh, okay, this is what I meant. Like, he doesn't do that. Jesus does not back off at all. That, that's what's startling is that he, he realizes the, the, the response, their offense. He realized they're arguing now. They're, they're grumbling, they're arguing, arguing. And he says, Not to soften it, he goes even further with it. Because truly, truly, verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and unless you drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. (sighs) Vivid imagery. That he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true blood, is true food. My blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Vivid imagery he's giving for them. But does he mean this literally, figuratively? What's going on here? Ultimately, what he's saying here is that you must believe and accept that his body was broken and his blood was poured out, and that is the sufficient foundation of your life. That's the essential meaning he's getting here. But take note here, this section has been used by, especially if you look at the Roman Catholic Church, one of the primary passages here to use to accept the idea that Christ meant this literally, 
which is why you get transubstantiation, right? Where the communion, the Eucharist, as they call it, what we call the Lord's table, the Eucharist where you're eating the body, the bread, they say literally turns into the body of Christ. When you drink the cup, it literally turns into the blood of Christ. That he's saying here, this is a literal act. But if you, if you go down that road, it ends in workspace because you're saying now then, if, if Jesus is here, if you, eat the, if you eat the flesh and drink the blood, Jesus is here saying you have eternal life. So if you're saying this is a literal activity, it's done in the Eucharist and communion, then you're saying that the way for me to get eternal life is I need to keep going to communion. I need to keep taking this Eucharist. I need to keep eating his flesh, keep drinking his blood. This is a dangerous path, dangerous path. But not only that, I think it contradicts other workspace passages where it speaks clearly of the fact that Jesus himself saying that the only way to life is belief and beholding him as a son. That this is the only way of salvation. And thirdly here, when Jesus uses the word flesh here, other passages in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, other places in the gospel when when Jesus is, is illustrating the Lord's Supper here, he doesn't use the word flesh, he uses body. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And here, Jesus is speaking of his flesh, a different word. So we can't connect the meaning of this passage to say that Jesus here is saying that take the communion and that's how you get eternal life, that you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's not saying that. But what he is pointing to the fact is that this is a radical call, that you believe that I am the only way to eternal life, that you must behold me, that you believe that my body that was broken for you, that my blood that was poured out for you, that that is the only sufficient means for eternal life. So unless you take that in, you have no life in yourself. He points out also how we know this is by the context of the passage. He's comparing once again that your fathers ate in the wilderness and what? They died. But he's saying here that 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 bread does not last. Physical bread does not last. He's saying metaphorically here that I am the bread of life, that my body, which represents the bread being broken, that my blood being poured out, that is the security of the covenant here, that I am the way of life. I am the truth. I am the sole source of eternal life. Another reason here, you note the parallel between verse, verse 40 and verse 54. Going back to verse 40, we looked at last week. He says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And then what? And I will raise him up on the last day. Go to verse 54, what we just read. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. You see, in both of these passages here, the hope, the result is, I will raise him up on the last day. He's saying here that if you, in verse 40, if if anyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, I will raise him up. If you eat my flesh and, and take my blood, then I will raise him up. He's connecting these two ideas here. One is metaphorical, and one he's using to point in imagery. That these are two ideas he's holding next to each other here. They both result in Christ raising them up on the last day. The latter is the metaphorical way of referring to the former. And I think as St. Augustine said it this way, he says, believe and you have eaten. That's a great way of putting it. Believe and you have eaten. In other words, if you believe that he is all that he said he is, if you believe all that he has done, if you truly believe and receive that, then you have eaten. And so Jesus here, he's not trying to to, to accommodate their own concerns because he realized the state of their heart. He's not trying to to answer them in a way that really responds to their hard-heartedness because if they were truly in a place where they were wanting to see his glory, if they were truly curious about his majesty, I I think Jesus would would have taken them aside like he does the disciples and explained, here, this is what I meant. But he realizes that's not the state of their heart. Their heart is hardened, as we've seen time and time again so far in this passage. So he responds to that hard heart by saying here, no, let me go a step further here. I am the only way, and I mean it. That not only here am I saying here is that the bread that your fathers ate, no good. I am the only true bread, and you must receive that. And if you don't, you will die in your sins. So he's taking a step further, realizing that they are offended by this message as they should be. And he says here, I am the only bread. That this is the bread of life. One commentator put it this way, that one must eat this bread, not merely taste it. To eat Christ as a bread of life means to accept, to appropriate, assimilate him, to believe in him. So that he begins to live in us and we in him. That that is what Christ is saying here. To eat, his blo- to eat his body, to eat his flesh, to drink his blood. Means to believe, to accept, to appropriate, to simulate, to believe all that he is. 
to take it in. To not just dabble, not just taste, but to really receive him. This offer of life was granted to anyone who eats, who believes in him. Just as he has life in the Father, he says, just as he has life on account of the Father, the one who eats of him will also have life, he says in verse 57. That he nails the final nail in the coffin of the argument regarding their forefathers here. Look in verse 58. He points out, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. Okay, I love how he ends it. He ends that discussion here about their forefathers they kept bringing up here. He said, really, this is bread that your fathers ate. They died, but this is the true bread. Who eats of me, you will live, period. And this bread here, he's comparing, it's not only better than the forefathers, it's also any, better than any bread that anyone can offer. If we're going to compare the true bread of life, to manna, we also must compare the true bread of life to anything, that nothing comes close to the true bread of life. There is no bread, no food, no sustenance in your life that will sustain you like the bread of life, that there is no one better than Christ. And ultimately, that's what Christ is saying here. You see, I am better than that bread. I, am, I come down from heaven, from the Father. I give life eternal. I am better than that bread. I am the bread of life. And nothing else will satisfy you like Christ himself. If that's the one message that we can take away on this side of the cross is to realize that Christ is the true bread of life. So if he is the true bread of life, do you still hunger? If he is the true bread of life, are you still thirsty? He satisfies everything. He satisfies all. That there is nothing else beside him. That he is the culmination of eternal life. He is the hope of eternal life. And he is all in that eternal life, that he promises everything, that he has life in him, and he gives that life to anyone who will come to him. Eat any other food and you will die, period. But to believe in him is to have everything. So we see the Jews here rightly offended by this message because they realize the implication of what that means for them. That if he is the true bread of life, what does that mean about my relationship now? What does that mean about my hope of life and my hope of glory? It means that it's nothing if I haven't received this man standing before me. So rightly so, it offends the offender. The second result here is when see it purges the false, purges the false professor. Not only does it offend the offender, offends the outsider, but it purges the false professor. I think in one sense, too, we, we, we kind of expect the outsiders, the Jews who have rejected their Messiah, to be offended by this message of salvation. We expect them to be offended because we realize the implications of what it means for them. But what we see here in these next six verses here is that it not only offends the outsiders, but it will offend his own disciples to the point that they abandon him. Look in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now he's speaking of the many of his disciples. It's not the 12. We'll get to the 12 later. But, but these were many of his disciples, many of the people who were following Christ outside of the 12, that many who saw all the miracles being done, who saw the sick being healed, the blind seeing, um, maybe even see him turning over tables in the temple. Like the many people who saw him and started to flock to Jesus. But they heard this message. Wait, 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 now eat, eat flesh. Wait, 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 wait a minute, I am the bread of life come down. Wait, from Moses? Wait, what are you saying? That many of these people who, who claim to love Christ, who claim to follow him, who, who were enamored with him, who, who saw the things that they saw, that they, they saw the external works, and they were pleased with it, that their bellies were filled. But then they hear this, this rough message of, of eat my flesh and drink my blood, realizing that, wait a minute, this is, what is this message? This is difficult to understand. But what's important here is that this sermon that Jesus said was not difficult to understand. It was difficult to accept. It was not difficult to understand. It was difficult to accept. It's difficult to accept the idea that this man, God, very God, in the flesh, that this man who claims to be God is God. It also means he demands everything of you. 
It wasn't the hardness of the sermon, but rather the hardness of their own hearts that brought them out of this unfavorable reaction. And so he responds to this. He says, well, if this caused you to stumble, verse 61, does, does this cause you to stumble? Well, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I mean, if you're, if you're offended by saying that I come down from heaven, well, wait till you see me ascend back up to heaven. Like, if that's what offends you, you haven't seen nothing yet. That these words here, he says later, that they're spiritual. They're not earthly. That these, these words give, give life. That it's by the work of the Spirit, he says in verse 63, that, these, that he gives life. That the flesh profits nothing. You can't hear this in your own flesh. Your own heart can't receive this. But these are words from the Spirit, and they give life. And yet he knew from the very beginning, as it says right after that, there, there are many who don't believe. To some of you who do not believe. He knew Judas was among them, and he also knew many others of them who did not believe. That Christ knew that those who were flocking to him, that ultimately were not flocking to him for the right reason. That many of those who were saying they love Christ and are following Christ did not really love him, but they loved what he could do for them. And so when it came to the point when it demands they're all, when you realize that I am the only way, that I am the bread that come down from heaven, this is a radical call to receive me and me alone, he realized that would offend some, and even those who profess to know him would be purged out by this message. This is a critical point in Jesus' ministry here in John chapter 6, because not only do you see the opposition from outsiders, but you see many of his own crowd were leaving him because of this. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him any longer. Many left him. That they walked away from him, the son of God. But he says in verse 65 that for this reason, this is why I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. That this is why I said this, that no one can come to me unless the father draws me. I know many will come to me and say they love me and say they will serve me, but I know many will also leave me eventually. Because you know why? Because if the father didn't bring you here, the father won't keep you here. This is the marvel of unbelief. I think it also, for us believers, it prepares us to face the attacks of unbelievers. But also realizing why our faith won't be shattered in the face of their unbelief. That this is the work that God does. That we must, just as Christ did, present him as the only way, the true bread of life. That whoever beholds the Son will have life. But also realize that only God can open the heart of the one that we're preaching to. So we rest in God's sovereignty, realizing that when he does unveil the, 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 the scales from the eyes, when he does awake the dead soul, that he will do it and he will accomplish it. That all we must be faithful to is to preach that pure, unadulterated message of Christ and him crucified. What a sad response that many of his own would walk away from him that many would abandon him, that many would say they love him and yet be offended so much that now they walk away. That this is too much. And I think it's also important to note that in verse 64, that Jesus knew from the very beginning, as it says, who would betray him. He knew from the very beginning who it was to betray him, that he walked into this earth with his eyes wide open. He knew that there would come a day when he would lay down his flesh, as he said. That knowing not all would believe in him, but even there would be one who betray him, speaking of Judas. So we see here, it purges the false professor. And the third result we're going to look at is it emboldens the believing. It emboldens the believing. Because we see here the, the offense of the outsiders. The Jews are offended. They're grumbling. They're, 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 they're arguing. His own people, many of his disciples heard this message, said it's too much for them, walked away. They purged out those who were falsely professing him. But now here it emboldens the believing here in this picture in verse 67 through 71. We see a response and the result from this third group. Because he turns to the 12 after that. He says, you don't walk away also, do you? Are you going to leave too? The outsiders, they left. Many of my own who said they love me, they left. The 12, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to follow a course with them? 
I mean, just keep in mind here, right? Let, let's keep in perspective here that this whole crowd, they all heard the same words, right? They heard the same words. They heard the same sermon. They saw the same Christ. Some were offended. Some were disheartened. But not all. But not all. Because Peter responds, right? Of course, it's always Peter, right? But this time it's a good response. Verse 68, Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Beautiful words there. It's like 70 verses later, finally. Like, like this, this is the perfect end of the circle here. This is what we've been waiting for this whole time. This whole time, Jesus presenting himself, I'm the bread of life. Anyone comes to me will not hunger. This whole time, this is the response we've been waiting for. But look here, while many will reject it, many will fall away, there will also be those who will cling to it and are strengthened by the very word of God. That he emboldens the believing through these words. That we see the response here, the disciples here, that they realize, no, 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 God, we we have come to know, meaning there's a point in time in the past, there's a definite point in time where they realized that he was Christ and they're still believing it today. No, we have come to know and we believe that you are the Holy One of God. That that very message affirmed that for us. That they're emboldened by this profession, emboldened by his teaching. Even in the midst of this beautiful, timely confession here, we see here that that they responded appropriately. That you are the Holy One of God. That this is what we've been waiting for. If only they could see that. But I love how even in that that beautiful profession that Peter gives us, we see the sovereignty of God still intact. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? That even in his response, even his rightful response, he says, did I not choose you, the 12? I don't think he's just speaking to their salvation. I think he's speaking to choosing them as apostles. But I think in either way, it's saying here, there's no room for self-glory here. That you didn't come to me on your own. I chose you. That this is a work that I pursued you. And you rightly saw me as your savior. And yet he does point Again, to the point when he will be betrayed by Judas, as it says in 71. But if we take away Peter's confession of faith here, of why it's so important in the context here, is realizing here that many will hear this message of Christ. Many will hear that he is the offer of free bread to anyone. Many will hear that message and not all will receive it. But we must marvel at the fact is that there will also be many who do receive it and welcome it with open arms. And you know why that happens? Because God worked upon that hardened heart. He chiseled off that stone. He brought back to life and he gave it life abundantly. And that's the beautiful message we want to take away here is that Christ here is the bread of life. He's offered himself to anyone who would receive it. And this is not a work of coercion where he's forcing, but he's really unveiling, he, he, he's unleashing, he's showing his glory, his power. So there's no other way, there's no other bread I crave, but he is the only bread. He is the only source of life. So as we close on this bread of life message of our Lord, it's important to see that this message was given to a crowd that needed to know that material things in life were not enough. That the material things of life, the things that they were seeking for, all the external manifestations of, 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 of signs, of miracles, of workings, of bread, all those things are not enough. But rather, he is the sole bread of life. That Jesus himself is presented perfectly as the sole source of spiritual life. And we must eat of him. We must believe in him. That he is the only source. He is the bread of life, brothers and sisters. That he is our source our sustenance, that he satisfies all cravings, that every longing of the heart is met in him, that there is nothing else that you can desire apart from him, that he satisfies all your needs, all your wants, everything that you could ever need or desire or want or crave, it is found in Christ. That just as bread was so essential for this society here, he is essential for our life even now and to evermore. I love this old hymn. It says, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? 
Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? That our hope and our life, brothers and sisters, are in his blood, in his body. It was broken for you. His blood was poured out for you. That is our anthem. That is our hope. That he is our salvation. And yet, to anyone else who has not taken partaken of this body, who has not partaken of this blood, if you have not believed upon him, my friend, today you can have this bread. Today you can drink of this cup. He offers it to anyone. And if you would receive him, if you would not harden your heart as the Jews did, if you would see him as he is, the son of God in flesh, giving his own flesh for the sake of salvation for you, if you receive that today, believe upon him, behold the son, my friend, life eternal is yours today. This is offered to anyone. Receive it. That he is the bread of life. And though many will reject it, many will be disheartened by it. Many will be saved by it for his own glory. That he will accomplish his work. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Realizing, Lord, that you are the only hope of life. That you are our hope, our salvation. You are our stronghold. Lord, you keep us and you sustain us. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth to accomplish its purposes, that you alone would be lifted high. And I pray, God, that we would be satisfied by none other. I ask this in Christ's name, amen.